but that's not what I'm preaching about today. Why don't we get to that? Um, really, I got some, anybody want some good news? So with this war going on in Israel and Gaza, one of the reports from our missionaries is that there were some families that they weren't able to locate. And I got an email this morning that uh, the two families that they were really trying to track down um, have safely gotten into Egypt. Um, and we praise God for that. Uh, I got a couple pictures. This picture here, the, the woman there, uh, second from the left, her name, her name is Flora. That's her and her family. She's a teacher with the uh, AG mission there in Gaza, and they got into uh, Egypt recently. Uh, actually, yesterday morning is when they got in. And the next picture is of Hannah and Janet. They are a family in the church, the Christian church there in Gaza. And uh, they've not really heard from them for weeks and weeks and weeks, and we've been praying for them. And they are, they are safe, and we praise God for that. Isn't that good news? Yeah, so when we talk about the Hope Fund, when we talk about missionaries, like these are, these are real lives and real people, and we thank God for that. We're in a series, and we're actually finishing it today. Uh, we're going into our Advent and our Christmas series next week. How many of y'all got your Christmas trees up already? Let me see your hands. There's, oh, wow, there's like way fewer people that's got it up than got their Christmas trees up than I thought. How many is waiting till after Thanksgiving to put your tree up? Yeah, that's, okay, I got it, Kevin, yeah, uh-huh. that's, that's the way that God intended, I understand. Yeah, uh, those of you that have went too early, hey, Mary doesn't know yet, you put up the tree too early. Um, but, that was a, okay, nobody cares. But we're going into that Christmas season starting next week, we got some really cool stuff that we're going to be sharing with you. We're finishing up a series uh, today we've been doing called um, How to Beat the Odds, and we've been talking about things like anxiety. We've been talking about debt. Uh, last week, Pastor Bo brought a, brought a great sermon about when the hits keep coming. Did y'all get anything out of that last week? Wasn't that a good sermon? Yeah, it was good stuff. And today, uh, we're, we're going to wrap this up with really a, a sermon, a teaching, a moment of clarity about the church of Jesus. Because here's the odds. The odds is that for at least the church in Stanley County, the church in America that the church is just another thing to fit into a busy life. Um, The odds, if we look at the statistics and we look at the real data, is that people are leaving the church rather than coming to the church. Um, For some of us that grew up in church, we don't really, some of us may not understand why that is. Some of us understand that far too well, and actually being in a church today was a little bit risky for you because you've got your reasons why you didn't want to participate in church for a while. And some of us, whenever we talk about the church and why people are or aren't going, we immediately start to look around and we're like, okay, I know that they're out to see family and uh, I just don't like the way it feels when fewer people are in the church. And we get uneasy and the tension's there. And I want to talk about that tension today. I want to talk about it in a way that, that pulls from Scripture. Like, how, are we, how, how does the church beat the odds in a culture that, basically says church is just one more thing to put into a schedule. Church is just whether you're into that religion or you're into that deity or you're into this thing or you're not, you know, uh, we, we, we all just kind of make our own decisions. Why, why does church matter? And I'm going to like give it kind of this, you know me, I, I like to come up with like statements and things that make, make us think, right? And so how are we going to beat the odds when it comes to whether we care about the church or not, I'm, I titled this sermon, Stop Going to Church. 
And it seems counterintuitive. It seems a little provocative. Like, why would a preacher actually say, stop going to church? Hopefully by, by the end of this thing, if, if you're still awake and with me, um, you'll understand where I'm, where I'm headed with this. Because I believe in the church of Jesus a lot. It's kind of like a key qualification if you're a pastor, you know. I really believe in the church of Jesus. I really believe that we, the church of Jesus, are how, how the Holy Spirit is working in this world through those families that we celebrated that are safe today, through Gina and Chi Alpha. They are an extension of our church on the college campuses here in North Carolina. Even through members who are feeling a calling of God on their life and they're, 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 we're sending you out in faith knowing that you hear from God. I believe in the church of Jesus. Do you know what the biggest threat to the church of Jesus is in Stanley County? What's the biggest threat to the church in Stanley County? The biggest threat to the church is not when Christians decide, I don't like the music at that church or the preaching at that church, I'm going to go to another church. It's not when members or Christians decide, you know what, I've heard from God and I've got, I've got to go do this now. The biggest threat to the church of Jesus in Stanley County, I would say all over the world, the biggest threat is when churches start worshiping someone instead of Jesus. When an ideal or a politic or a belief or a person is seen as, the, as who that church is worshiping. When we are known for anything other than the love of Jesus, that's the biggest threat to the church. Can I tell you something? I, I can go all over this county and ask people what they think about Jesus. And even atheists will agree that Jesus had some admirable qualities. They, they really admire and they really appreciate. Even agnostics will say, you know, if Jesus was a real person, then the things he did were quite remarkable, quite countercultural, contrary to how we live our lives today. I haven't met many people who have a problem with Jesus, but I have met so many people who have a problem and a hurt with the church. There's a lot of reasons why. Churches are filled with imperfect people. But the biggest threat is really when someone, when we worship someone other than Jesus. Let me tell you a story. I'll, I'll call this guy Bubba, okay? Because that just sounds like a good Stanley County name for somebody. I don't know anyone in town named Bubba anymore. Not a nickname, an actual name. Uh, I had a couple of friends in the past, but we'll just call this guy Bubba. I met Bubba recently at the Lowe's. And he came up to me with a big smile, and he shook my hand. And recently, being like in the past month, and he shook my hand, and he said, hey, you're the new preacher over there at, at the church on 2427, right? And I'm like, I've been here three years, but I know how that goes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm the new preacher, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we love the church. We go to that church. We've been going to that church for a long time. I watch y'all every week, um, blah, blah, blah. I was like, great, what's your name? He told me his name, Bubba, you know, all this stuff. He goes, man, I, well, I just, I've got, man, I've got a, I've got a, would y'all pray for, for my family? I was like, absolutely, man. Absolutely, we'll pray for our family. He goes, my marriage is, my marriage, we're in the middle of lows, and he just, like, starts into a whole pastoral counseling mode. He goes, my marriage is struggling. This is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening. You know, we're, we're, 
We're standing next to the drywall, just, you know, hanging out. Tell me about his marriage. And then he goes, my teenage son, he's just vaping stuff, and I don't think it's good stuff. And in my head, I'm like, well, what, are, what, is, the, what is good to vape? Anyway, never mind. He goes, you know, he's, and then my back, I've had back problems, and I've got to have this surgery, but it's taken longer than it should. And, and, and we shouldn't have bought that boat. We went into debt for the boat. He just keeps talking and talking. Like, I'm pulling up my phone. I'm like, okay, let me take notes on this Bubba marriage. You know, I'm taking all the notes. And he goes, and you know, my mom is dying. My friend has cancer. I don't even like my job or my life. And I realize, like, this is more than a prayer request. This is more, this is like a conversation. Like, we've, we've moved from, we go to that church, we do this, we do this. And this has moved into a, a conversation. I said, you know what, Bubba, of course I'll pray with you. I, I can't remember, I don't remember ever seeing you before. Where do y'all sit on Sundays? I want to look for them. I want to follow up with them. I want to, you know, email them or call them or something. And you know, all different places, I guess. And I was like, oh, okay, sit in different places. Well, it's not that big of a room, but... I said, "Are your, your son like that? That's vaping, and like, the, 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 does he come to youth group? Do you do you serve on a team or anything?" He goes, "No, nah, we don't do all that kind of stuff." I was like, "Oh, okay. You mentioned about you know the boat and the the different things. Like, we've had this class, financial peace. Did you hear about that?" And he goes, "No, nah, no, nah, I heard nothing about that. Uh, come to think of it, we just really come on Sundays when we can." Um, I'm like, "Oh, okay, cool. When's the last time you were there?" And he goes, "Gosh, I." Before COVID? I don't, I don't know. And so we prayed, and I talked with him, and I told him something he probably didn't expect to hear. I told him something that I'm going to tell you today. I said, Bubba, maybe you shouldn't watch us on YouTube anymore, man. Maybe you shouldn't even worry about attending a church on Sunday. And he just kind of looked at me because, you know, preachers don't say that. I wanted him to see something. I wanted him to see something about the church that if you reduce the church down to something you watch or just something that you do and to fit it into your calendar, you're missing out on the community of Jesus. He uses the church to bring healing. You don't find healing in the church of Jesus from looking at a screen or from attending a group of people Every once in a while. God's calling for you was never to attend a church. God's calling for you was never to watch church or to make mama happy because we go eat lunch together on Sundays after church. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't have to go to church. I just got to go eat lunch with my mama on Sundays and she's happy. God's highest calling for you is to be the church. To embody the life of the church. So when I say stop going to church, it's with that in mind. Because if we treat the church like it's a consumable, like everything else from the new coffee place that all of us said wasn't going to work, and now we see that there's always cars in line at the new coffee place and we can't believe it, to the new Starbucks, to the new chicken place, to the new family home cooking place, if we just treat the church of Jesus like it's another shop that we attend because we like something, we're missing out on the hope of the church. And you know what? 
Our culture doesn't need another thing to do. You don't need another thing to do. It doesn't really matter if your social calendar has church in it or not, if it's only a place for recreation or when it fits in. No, church is God's highest calling for the gospel to be spread throughout the world. It's more than just a place to attend. The odds are this, church will become just another thing to fit into your busy life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. Who builds the church of Jesus? Jesus said, who builds his church? I will build my church, says Jesus. Now, I also believe that the church of Jesus is not called to lose their minds and do, you know, sinful things. We are to follow Jesus. Because who builds the church of Jesus? And if you look around and you want more people in your church, let me encourage you to look inward and ask Jesus, what other parts of me do you need to fill? Because Jesus builds his church. And not only that, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means that the gates of gates are created to hold something out, which means that hell has gates to keep people in and to keep other things out. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, meaning that the church is going to be, the church of Jesus is such an indestructible force. The church of Jesus is on a mission that the gates of hell won't be able to hold back the gospel of Jesus. Those of us that walk around and say our culture is going to hell in a handbasket and things are worse than they've ever been and I can't believe that this is happening and I can't believe that that's happening and we just get all worried and all worried and all this and all that. Let me remind you what Jesus said about the church, that the gates of hell can't hold it back. So if there's something wrong with the church and you feel there's something wrong in your church, don't look anywhere but yourself first. Look at yourself. What is it about me being in the church Am I pushing back the gates of hell? Am I on a mission that is, that is the church of Jesus? Why doesn't Bubba and his family participate more often? Why did the church attendance plummet across the nation even before COVID? Why is the church, why isn't the church seen as a place of life and love of Jesus Christ more than it's seen as anything else? And I'm just going to like say some blunt things here for a minute. And you may not like it, but you know me. (laughs) The church, especially in the Southeast, the evangelical church, We have a branding problem. What's branding? Branding is not necessarily logos and advertisements. Branding is what the community says about a business or an entity or an organization. See, I can can throw out, you know, Walmart. And a lot of y'all will be like, oh, I hate going to Walmart, but I go to Walmart. (laughs) Why? Because I got what I need. I hate going to Walmart. I hate the people of Walmart. Do you realize you're the people of Walmart? No, never mind, you know. (laughs) But Walmart has a branding thing. Yeah, it's known as the place to get things probably for more cheap than you can get it at the local place. But we all want to support local business, but Walmart money rules. 
And so you go get your tires at Walmart, some of us. Or I say Pizza Hut, and you're like, the one on 52 or the one over there by Eastgate? Because I don't like this one, or I don't like that. What, what is that? That's the branding of those places. It doesn't matter what a place is necessarily called or what they tell you they want to be called. It matters the reputation of that place. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, recently, I had, had an, like, like a... Like a uh, an esophagus problem. Like I had to, I had to get an endoscopy. And I originally, so growing up here in Albemarle, this is, this is just a longstanding kind of tongue-in-cheek joke, and I mean no disrespect, it just kind of is. I've always been told if you want to go to the hospital, well, nobody wants to go, but if you have to go to the hospital and you think it might be serious and you want, you want to go to Concord, that's what, anybody ever heard that here now? Okay, especially if you think like you, you're going to need a, a, a catheterization or you know, some kind of extended therapy. Go to Concord. Don't go to Stanley. Stanley's like a little hospital. Concord, and blah, blah, you know, all this stuff. Well, I went to Concord, and they didn't fix the problem. They sent me home with some antacid that kept hurting, and I went to Stanley because I was hurting. And man, the hospital manager person came in my room and asked me, how is there anything else we can help you with, Mr. Dry? They gave me morphine there to help me with pain. That's dangerous, but it helped with pain. They diagnosed me. They helped me. They followed up with me. It was a completely different thing. Now, if you work in Concord, you work in, I'm, not, I'm not trying to disrespect. I'm saying the branding that I grew up with is if you want something, you go to Concord. And, man, I got help more at Stanley, and it shocked me. Because the brand, the things that I understood just didn't add up in that moment. The church in the southeast of the U.S., we have a branding problem. We are known for things worldwide, nationwide. We are known in this community, the evangelical church in this community is known by people who don't go to that church. We are known as critical, hypocritical Christians. And you may shake your head and say, that's not me. Well, I'm sorry. That doesn't change the fact that that's the way a lot of culture sees the church. And not just this church, all the other churches too. Judgmental, mean, cliquish. I go to that church and nobody says hello. Man, I hope that's not the case here. When Sean and I were in Baltimore and the, 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 the Catholic church was going through their sexual scandals, we had an image problem just being associated with, with the church. We weren't even Catholic. And we had people that refused to go to a church because they felt that it wasn't a safe place. The church of Jesus, if you want to get down to it, why people from outside the church don't really want to be associated with the church is because churches have a branding problem. And I think that the branding problem that we see is completely brought to the cross with this next verse I want to share with you. It's a verse out of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says this to the church in Rome, the church that is, that is set up for the world in the empire. He says this, there is not, this is out of King James, there is therefore now no condemnation, say no condemnation, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Another translation, the NIV says it this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, say no condemnation, for those who were in Christ Jesus. What about good old Uncle Eugene's version of the message? It says it this way. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. What about the NCV? So now, those who are in Christ Jesus are not judged guilty. And the NIRV, those who belong to Christ Jesus are no longer under God's sentence. Contemporary English version, if you belong to Christ Jesus, you won't be punished. There's a common theme in all the different translations and versions of the scripture, and I love it because you can't ignore it. No matter what anybody says about church or faith or religion or whatever, no matter what anybody says, this verse for Christians who follow Jesus, this verse is real and it's powerful, and it makes it clear that guilt has limits. Judgment has its limits. Condemnation has limits. This verse declares that guilt is not just an emotional state, but it's a state for deserving punishment. That word guilt in the Greek even has definitions that include like financial transactions like debt. There's a debt that must be paid. Guilt demands punishment. There must be a consequence. So whoever is guilty must first be accused and then condemned. And the reason I bring this up is because for a lot of people, the church and guilt are the same thing. They instantly feel judged. They instantly feel looked down on. And it's not just currently like in our 21st century 2023 world this is historic like we inherited this branding there's 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 these wars called the crusades that happen there's the inquisition the reformation the counter-reformation all these happened before the usa was even a nation and since then the american south has perfected the art of the guilt trip Some of y'all grow up in families and you're not looking forward to going to these families over Thanksgiving because you know you're going to be put on a guilt trip. Don't raise your hands. It's okay. There's an old TV show where um, the mother in in the show, the matriarch of the family, personifies the guilt trip in such a fantastic way. And it's also just a little bit of humor to kind of pick us up out of this heaviness of guilt, and I thought it would be appropriate if we laughed a little bit at ourselves. Watch Marie and her boys in the guilt trip. Just get in there. Come on, let's go. Oh. oh. You boys have done a beautiful job putting these together. Thank you, Mom. Thanks. <laughs> Do me a favor. Don't sand them in here. <laughs> sand them? Of course. You can't paint them until you sand them. I can't have unfinished wood in my house. It doesn't go with the decor. It's the laundry room. This color will go very nice with that orange box of Tide. All right, look, Ma, I'm just going to put it back here for now, and we'll paint it on Sunday. No, I have people coming tomorrow. 
Oh, you might as well just drag it out to the trash. <laughs> All right, just call the guys and tell them we'll meet him at the course. Really? I mean, it's unbelievable. Of course it is. I'll be honest with you, Marie, looking at those shells, I think Lee's going to win this one. What do you mean? Win what? Ah, uh, Lee's all full of herself, because her son built a special box for her spoon collection. <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything. Give me a break. That's why your mother wants to drag Lee into the laundry room, so she can show her what you two do for her. Ow! <laughs> That's why we're doing this, Ma, because... Because Lee's son has nothing better to do all day than to kiss his mom's behind. Have you seen Lee's behind? It does take all day. And yet we still felt bad, like what we were doing wasn't good enough. Yeah, we always feel bad. We fall for it every time. The guilt. Your guilt. If you feel guilty, it's not because of me. Oh, yeah, right, Ma. And by the way, where's the limp? Yeah. <laughs> I feel very sad. All this anger against me because of your precious golf. No, no, that's just a straw that broke the camel's back. You've been making us feel guilty about stuff our whole lives, and we're sick of it. Sick! <laughs> Nothing is ever good enough, and it's always our fault. Hey, you can't speak to your mother like that. You do. She's not my mother. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, the guilt trip, it's over. Come on, let's get out of here. And we're not moving that. That's right. Amen, brother. Fine, go. Leave an old crippled woman with unfinished belly and an uncaring husband. <laughs> Yesterday, that would have worked. Now, don't point them out, but how many of y'all know somebody like that mama right there? <laughs> nobody, nobody. There, okay, two of us, two of us, three of us brave souls in here. It's like a salvation call, you know, who wants to, I don't know. There, there's a story in scripture about an encounter in the church. And I, th I think that video, and especially Marie, the mom in that video, it, it, it in, in a funny way, it, it shows how a lot of people see the church. Like, I can't measure up. I can't be good enough. There's always going to be something wrong with me. If I go to church and I have this moment where I, you know, go to an altar or I do these things, you know, somebody's going to come up to me and say, yeah, but what about that thing? Somebody's going to always be judging me and somebody's always going to be looking down on me. And I, like, like this, this, this picture of Marie in this video Gosh, I don't want us to be known by that branding, by that image, by that feeling. When I read Romans 8, I really want that no condemnation thing to be our branding, to be what the church is known for. And it can be if we'll believe it. It really can be if we'll embody it. There's a story in, in, about how the, the first church 
encounters this, this, this no condemnation thing. And it probably isn't the story you would originally think about when you're thinking about guilt. But it's a story of what happened when the church shared the love and the no condemnation thing rather than an accusation. It's in the book of Acts, and one day we may do a, a whole series through this book. It's a great book. Uh, but it's in the book of Acts, chapter 8, starting in verse 26. And I want to read this story to you, and I want you to see if you can pinpoint where, where the no condemnation and the embrace of the other starts happening. Later, God's angel spoke to Philip at noon today. I want you to walk over to that desolate road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Where is it going from? Jerusalem down to where? Oh, wow, this might be a current event sermon or current event scripture. I want you to go down to that road. It goes from Jerusalem all the way down to Gaza. Philip, he got up and went. He met an Ethiopian eunuch coming down the road. Now, a eunuch is not a word that we necessarily, we don't use that word a lot today. But historically, a eunuch is a person who has been desexualized either by choice, by birth, or by force. And this Ethiopian eunuch had had his reproductive organs removed, and he was desexed, and he was in service to the government. He was in service to the queen of the Ethiopians, Candace. He handled financial, and, 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 and eunuchs were made into eunuchs so that they would not be a threat to those in power. And they were usually very, taken very well care of, and they were given high positions of authority because there was no chance that they could ever become a person of royalty or a king or a queen because they could produce no heirs. They had no ambition. He met an Ethiopian eunuch coming down the road. The eunuch had been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was returning to Ethiopia. A pilgrimage is a journey that has faith tied to it. You hear about people taking Holy Land pilgrimage where they go to Jerusalem. That's what he's doing. He's going to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. Why? Because that's where the temple is. That's where the Jewish God was. That's where, where all this history is. And he was going because he's looking for an epiphany. He's looking for something. It's a journey filled with faith on a specific quest. He had been on this pilgrimage and now he's returning to Ethiopia where he was minister in charge of all the finances of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He was riding in a chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit told Philip, climb into the chariot. Running up alongside, Philip heard the eunuch reading Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked him, do you understand? And the eunuch answered, how can I without some help? And he invited Philip in the chariot with him. The passage he was reading was, was this. As a sheep led to the slaughter and quiet as a lamb being sheared, he was silent, saying nothing. He was mocked and put down, never got a fair trial. But who now can count his kin since he's been taken from the earth? Now before I go on, would anybody venture to make a guess as to who the prophet Isaiah is referring to? Anyone? Jesus. How do we know this? Because we know the story of Jesus. We know he was mocked and abused. The eunuch said, tell me who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip grabbed at the chance. Using the passage as his text, he preached Jesus to him. 
The eunuch said, here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down to the water and Philip baptized him on the spot. All right, so let's talk about this. Philip, a church leader, he's called the evangelist, has an encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch, a slave of the government, literally. Desexed, money handler for the queen, powerful. This is a weird story. A Jewish, Orthodox Jew, church guy who has met Jesus, hanging out with a desexualized African of power, and he jumps into the chariot with him. I mean, how is, how is this story going down? Here's what Philip doesn't do. He doesn't jump in the chariot and accuse the guy of not being Jewish. Well, you know what? You're not of the royal bloodline. He doesn't accuse the guy of not having the right background. You're not the right color. You don't have the right bloodline. You don't believe the right things. You've not been circumcised. That was a big thing for the Jewish people back then. Philip doesn't jump into the chariot and accuse him of taking the wrong pilgrimage. You know what? Since you're not a Jew, you shouldn't even have been taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I don't know what you're looking for, but you're not Jewish, and that has nothing to do with you. Philip doesn't do that. And he doesn't accuse him of being physically enslaved to a queen. You know what? If you are really a man, if you are really a person of faith, you would break those bondage chains and you would refuse to live in service to the queen. You would refuse. You, you, you're, not, you're not even male or female at this point. Here's what Philip does do. He gets into the chariot, which culturally is a significant step because he identifies himself as the guest of the eunuch. He identifies himself in service to the eunuch. He helps him understand who the scripture is talking about, and he preaches Jesus. He preaches the good news. And this eunuch says, well, can't I be baptized too? Can I tell you something? Anytime a person, if you ever have anybody ask you, can I be baptized? The answer is always yes. The answer is, if a person has found Jesus and is like, well, can I be baptized too? The answer is always yes. Yes. Well, they don't have this right. They don't have that right. This part, they, they don't have their sex right. The answer is always yes. Why? Because we are imperfect beings, all of us. And I know how depraved my sin can be. And if I can be baptized, I think you can be too. Because I know what darkness this heart can hold. And if it weren't for Jesus, I would be enslaved to it. I was not perfect when I was baptized. And neither were you. And neither was the eunuch. There is a fine line between condemnation and correction. Condemnation says I'm guilty And I'm the wrong person. Condemnation says things like this. You'll never be able to understand. This stuff is way too complex. You might even start putting things in like, I'm just a moron. Condemnation says a desexualized African has no business reading the Hebrew prophets. It's almost sacrilegious. 
You don't belong. Stop trying to belong because you just don't fit. You will never be enough to get that faith right. You can't even be circumcised anymore. That's what condemnation says. Correction says, I'm loved and I'm just the right person. You are an image bearer of the Most High God, created by God. And you may not have heard this in a while, but you are loved. You are loved. Keep going. You're just the right person because Christ wants to help you. You're just the right person because Jesus has enough love to embrace everybody. Baptize you? Heck yeah, we'll baptize you. How could we not? The message of the early church, the branding, the thing the early church was known for and what got them in trouble with the religious elders is that there was now no condemnation. That's what they were known for. It, it does, condemnation didn't exist anymore. And this message that condemnation doesn't exist builds relationships. It bridges relationships. And the question is, are we, the church of Jesus, bold enough to believe this message? Dare we believe it? We might just begin deconstructing the branding that the church currently has of being weak, critical, hypocritical Christians. How do we become this message of no condemnation in Christ and rewrite the future of the church? We have to believe it. Relationships are destroyed by condemnation. Destroyed. We we have to shift our thinking back to the first century. And since none of us existed then, we have to look at Scripture to know what that thinking was. We have to shift our communication to looking more like that first church. We have to look more like Philip in the story than the guy with the bullhorn on the corner. The message of the early church was this. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Reality is, we, the church, still live with guilt even when we preach the love of Jesus that has been offered to us. And I'm convinced that we, the church, have such a problem with condemnation, with judgment, with guilt, with all these things because we have not historically been bold enough to believe that condemnation has been eradicated by Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. Some of us need to put that on an index card. And put it where we look all the time. Whether that's in a mirror or in our car or in a locker. There is no condemnation in Christ. we got to say it till we believe it. Why? Because we are so hard on ourselves. We don't love ourselves, but Jesus loves us. We don't forgive ourselves, but Jesus loves us. Jesus forgives us. And, and this, I don't think this is in your notes, but this is like something to hold on to or something to like embody and think about and process. When we hold on to guilt, we can't embrace the truth of Jesus' love. As long as we're holding on to guilt, we can't open our hands to embrace the love of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said about our behavior. Here's what Jesus said about love. Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior, Jesus says, out of Matthew 7. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. 
Now, this is a really easy thing to ask and to answer because all of us have gotten caught up in the thing of what didn't happen that I wish would have happened. I wish he would have called. I wish she would have cared. I wish he would have given me words of affirmation. I wish she would have spent time with me. I wish I would have got, you know, there's, there's, we, we hold things against people when, we, when they don't meet our expectations. So this is really easy to do. Jesus says, ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and the prophets, and this is what you get. Loving God, loving others. You may have heard the golden rule, doing to others as you would have them doing for you. This is what Philip did, the early church. Was it criticism, hypocrisy, or judgment? It was no condemnation. It was love. So that's it. Guilt, condemnation, it's not something that God cultivates. That is the voice of the accuser. Anytime you hear the voice of guilt, anytime you hear the voice of judgment, anytime you hear the voice of like hypercriticism, condescension, gosh, I need you to know that's not the voice of God. The Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit guides, the Holy Spirit corrects. If, if I look the same today as I did when I was accepting Jesus early on, if I, if I still have the same, like, like I've not really leaned into that love, something changes in us because of love, not because of guilt, not because of condemnation. Guilt might be a catalyst in the beginning, but it's not something we should live with. And how are we going to beat the odds as a church? We're going to be the church where people are loved. Where we look for the people who aren't accepted and the people who are rejected. And we reach out. Where our groups of friends of people are, are strong, but they're not cliquish in that we welcome other people into our circles. That's how we're going to do it. That's, that's it. That, that's when you, when, when you love, you beat the odds every time. Because without love, without Romans 8, the church will die. The church will close its doors. Because the church will be following something other than Jesus. That's the truth. So as we close, I want to say a couple prayers for you before we leave. First prayer I want to pray is a prayer that says, help me, God, remind me that there's no condemnation. Help me, God, that the mission of your church is to push back the gates of hell, not to welcome in the condemnation from hell. Remind me, help me, God, to remember that your love and your grace and your message and your mission is always brighter than the lights we see from war, is always louder than the voices of condemnation, and is always more powerful than the sounds we hear booming across our busy, busy world. Help me, God. Not to embrace brokenness from a, from, a, from a standpoint that I'll never be okay. 
but to embrace brokenness as the fertile ground from where you grow beautiful things. That's the first prayer I want to pray. And then the second prayer I want to pray with you has to do with submitting our lives and submitting our church and everything that we are to Jesus. That nothing would stand in the way of our worship of him. That everything would be built on that foundation. So would you stand with me? And we're going to pray together. First prayer. If this is you, hands out in front of you with palms facing up. Help me, God. Remind me, God. Remind me that there is now no condemnation. Remind me, God, that when I hear the voice of the accuser, that that's not you. Be close to me, God, so that I can always recognize and walk toward your voice. Remind me that the mission of your church, the reason that your church exists, the power of you in your church pushes back the gates of hell and not the other way around. There is no need for fear in the church of Jesus. This world is not going to hell. This world is going to be redeemed because you make all things new. Help me, God. Reach down and start putting some of these pieces back together in me. Because, God, the truth is I'm in as much danger of looking down on my neighbor, condemning my neighbor, judging my neighbor, I'm in danger of that, God, because, gosh, deep down, sometimes I don't believe I'm that lovable by you. Some of us today, we need to reach our hands out to God and say, help me believe again that your love is for me. Help me, help me feel again the warmth of your spirit. the soothing embrace of Christ's sacrifice for me. And God, help us as a church to always put you as the center and as our focus. Guard us from placing anything other than Christ as the focus of our worship. Guard us, God, from being affectionate towards people and the ways of this world. Guard us, God, from thinking that anything can save us and give us restitution and salvation other than the love of Jesus Christ. That will keep us humble. And God, make us more generous. Anxiety and fear and depression lose their footing when generosity is practiced. So put within us the heart of Jesus. And all across this room, if you feel like you're far away from God, I've got some good news for you. That's a myth. You can't be far away from God. He's everywhere. He was here before you showed up. He was with you when you came in. He's going to be with you when you leave. You can't escape God.
but you may feel like you're far away. Maybe you just need to make things right with him today. If that's you, I want you to pray this prayer after me. Actually, everybody's going to repeat this after me, okay? You ready? Loud and proud. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. You're a savior. I believe you died. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe your power is greater than anything else. And I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to live for you. Help me, Jesus. To live in your love. Truly. Daily. With the Spirit's help. In the name of Jesus, I pray.